For the first year in the series of Talmud Torah, I would like to address probably the most essential question about Talmud Torah. Avodah Hashem Yiddishkeit places such a central role on Talmud Torah for a first Mishnah in Peah, which we recite every morning, Vitalmud Torah Keneged Kulam. And certainly there's no shortage of statements in Chazal about the centrality of Talmud Torah, almost exclusive centrality, really uncontested centrality. In fact, when Chasidus, the 18th century Chasidus, tried to create a bit of a revolution and replace the centrality of Talmud Torah with the centrality of Tefillah, this of course caused a great ruckus and a great controversy, leading to, on the one hand, harsh antagonistic responses, and ultimately to what one would say is a bit of a diluting or a moderation of the original approach of Hasidus. And today, in the modern context, one be very hard-pressed to claim that Hasidus places less of an emphasis on Talmud Torah than other branches of Judaism. So, this process merely demonstrates how uncontested the primacy and centrality of Talmud Torah is. And for many, the question remains, why? Why is it so central? Why is the world of study, the world of studying Hashem's Torah, why is it granted so much importance? Why as a community do we invest so massively in Talmud Torah at all levels? Beyond just, obviously, the need to know, the need to educate, as Hillel himself claimed, Lo Hama'aretz Chassid, if a person doesn't study Torah, to quote it in Pirkei Avos, a person doesn't study Torah, it would be difficult for him to understand how to perform mitzvahs. That type of Torah study, merely as a facilitator, as a means to an end of performing mitzvahs, that type of Torah study could be accomplished with far less effort and far less commitment than the amount of energy we invest in our Torah study. For us, Torah study is more than just a practical means or a pragmatic step to acquire the requisite knowledge. Very famous statement of the Beis HaLevi, the grandfather, the great-grandfather of Rosh The Gemara in Shabbos claims that when Am Yisrael stood at Harsinai and recited Nasev and Ishma, so angels descended and placed two crowns on top of each head, one crown for Nasa and one crown for Nishma. And the Beis HaLevi asks a very interesting question. They really only deserved one crown. The courage, the boldness of placing Nishma, or Nasa, excuse me, before Nishma, they were willing to perform Hashem's mitzvahs and obey God's word even before they studied and considered and debated. That was great boldness, that was great commitment that they deserved a crown for, but why two crowns? So Beis answers, and this is a typical statement about the primacy of Torah study, even if it's not geared towards educating and enabling mitzvah performance, that once they had already prefaced their response with the word Nasa, that in theory they may have been excused from Torah study. They had already committed to fulfill the mitzvahs. Just give us a list of mitzvahs to detail responsibilities, and we'll accede and we'll fulfill. The fact that they provided the second part of that phrase, they asserted not just Nasa, but Nishma, we'll study Torah, even if 
We don't have to study Torah for mitzvah performance. We've already committed to mitzvah performance. We've already committed to Nasa. For us, Torah study isn't just to facilitate mitzvah performance, but to understand the Word of God and the knowledge of God. That is the mandate for their second crown, that now that they, so to speak, liberated Torah study from a mere practical step to enable mitzvah performance, now Torah study became an end unto itself. To appreciate the centrality and the primacy of Torah study, a bit of a generalization is necessary. Religion, of course, is pitched, is premised, on man's search for a higher being, for a presence or a being in heaven. That search, of course, is haunted by the innate structural differences between man and God. Man is mortal. God is immortal. Man is limited. God is infinite. Man is morally flawed. God is perfect. Man is physical. God is invisible and indescribable. The interaction between man and God, which is so central to the religious experience, is ultimately an incongruent one, a discrepant one. This is, of course, according to many Rishonim, who read Shir HaShirim in a universal stance, not just a book of Jewish history, but a book describing man's pursuit of God in a more general religious sense, as the Rambam read it. This is, of course, latent in the the, the clash of Shir HaShirim. That is, much as we search and long emotionally for God, there's just too many things dividing us, which is too different from God. For that relationship to be easy, for that relationship to be smooth, for that relationship to be fulfilled immediately without the pursuit and without the strain that's so latent in the book of Shir Hashir. The truth is, much of world history, and when I say world history, I don't mean politicians and wars, but religious history. Much of world history, religious history, has been shaped and impacted by this incongruence. And the classic answer, solution, I shouldn't say answer, the classic solution, which is a distortion or perversion, but nonetheless a solution that human beings have offered, is the approach of paganism. (coughs) Paganism is an attempt to either slightly or grossly humanize God and thereby make him more accessible, more identifiable, to pave the road, or to use a better metaphor, to bridge the chasm that separates human beings and the divine. So there are some forms of paganism that are very, very extreme, that are very harsh, that essentially convert God into eights for even, masa yede adam, whether it's the paganism of antiquity, of molten images, or art, or idols, or the paganism of vesting divine presence in the surrounding terrains and landscapes of nature, the paganism of the original Native American Indians, some have called it mythopoeicism, to read God into a season or into a lake or into a wind or into a mountain. 
But that made God very, very accessible, very intimate. Of course, paganism progresses and it becomes a bit more abstract. One could say elegant. God isn't a masayite adam. But even the paganism of Greek, of Greece and Rome, seeing God as spiritual, ethereal beings, but beings who nonetheless have some sort of physical reference, acted like human beings, interacted with human beings, committed crimes recognizable to the human imagination, just made them more human. Even Christianity is not a complete liberation from paganism. On the one hand, God himself remains transcendent and unknowable and invisible, but, so to speak, he has a child who is very physical, who bleeds like a human and for humans. And of course, the great legacy of the Jewish march has been the utter defiance and the rejection under great strain of paganism. First, we rejected the extreme forms of paganism, and we were hated for such because we stood for monotheism. And ultimately, as the world converted into a monotheistic world, but it was still a monotheism, at least in Christian lands, which was still saddled with traces of ancient paganism. And we rejected it, and we refused conversion, we refused admitting any, any discussion about a physical nature to God. At great price through great heroism, under great stress. And a Jew remains committed to the notion that God is not physical, can't be portrayed in human terms, can't be discovered. And that gap will forever remain. But how does a Jew, who emotionally, even though he knows intellectually, that God is different and apart, but emotionally, you quest for that commitment, for that connection, for that intimacy with God. After all, as the Rambam writes, so much of Avas Hashem in Hilchas Yisrael the Atarah Perak Beis, Halacha Beis, is premised upon knowledge. Without knowledge, you can't love God. So how do we love Hashem if we can't truly know Him or depict Him or portray Him? So, of course, the answer to that question is through a myriad of different experiences. There's so many different ways in which a Jew serving God interacts with and connects with God. The world of mysticism provided its own answers, the world of Kabbalah. But without veering into the world of Kabbalah, the most direct way to approach God, we can connect with God by praying to Him. We connect with God by imitating His moral image turning ourselves, converting ourselves into moral, ethical human beings and building a society that reflects the will of God, the ethical, moral will of God in sensitivity to the Jewish historical challenge and building a historical redemption in our current day by returning to our land and rebuilding our land and trying to accelerate the end of days. But the most direct way to know God not to know God, of course, because we can't know his essence, is to know his will. And Torah is the approximation of Hashem's will in human terms. Of course, it's not the totality of Hashem's will, because Hashem's will is infinite, but it's the closest approximation. And for all intents and purposes, in a human scale, Torah is infinite. And David HaMelech uh, articulates this in Shlomo HaMelech, Rechava Minayam is broader than the waters, it's larger than the sweep of our world. Hashem is infinite, 
And if Torah is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will, then it's infinite as well. Now again, in, in essence, whether Torah is or isn't infinite, it's hard to know because no one ever knew all of Torah. No one could ever make that claim. We know God is infinite. But for all intents and purposes, from in a human scale, again, Torah is infinite. In Kabbalah, this is known as the phrase HaKadosh Baruch Hu V'oraisa Chadhu. God and His Torah are really one. Now that doesn't mean that the Torah is the total essence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu Torah is HaKadosh creation. But again, in human terms, <laughs> the phrase I used a few moments ago, the closest approximation in human terms. So for example, the Medrash in the beginning of Parshas Truma, on the Pasuk V'yichu Li Truma, which literally means, on the literal level, you will donate money to my base Amikdash, to my Mishkan, the Yikhuli, they will dedicate money on my behalf, Truma. But it should have written, Vyitznuli Truma, not Vyikhuli Truma. So the Medrash interprets this as if we are purchasing Hashem. By building a base Amikdash, we're purchasing Hashem because we are assuring His presence in our midst. But the purchasing of Hashem through building the Mishkan could only be a accomplished after we acquired and this is a continuation of the Medrash after we acquired the daughter of Hashem the parable of the Medrash is of a father-in-law who marries off his daughter but misses her too dearly and therefore pleads with his new son-in-law to build a separate room near their home where he can reside in close proximity to his daughter who he misses so lovingly the Nimshal is of course once we acquire the daughter of Hashem the daughter of Hashem is, of course, the Torah. Hashem, as it were, misses his daughter, his Torah, so dearly that he pleads with us, please build a room near you so that I can reside in close proximity, close vicinity to my daughter, and hence the construction of the Mishkan. So the Mishkan's construction is only validated after we acquire the daughter of Hashem, Hashem's Torah. So this is a way for Chazal to refer to Torah as an approximation of Hashem's will, the daughter of Hashem. Another metaphor which Chazal used to try to capture the unity between Hashem and Torah, even without maintaining that they're actually the same, is the phrase, Shem Hashem. So, for example, the Gemara in Brachos on Daf Chaf Aleph discovers that of the two brachos, there are only two brachos that are minatara benching, and the brachasatara lifne, the bracha we recite on Torah study before we read from the Torah. And the Gemara questions, how do we know that a bracha on Torah is midere? When I call out the name of Hashem, you should give praise and glorify. Again, on a literal level, this means when you hear the name of Hashem, you have to bow down, you have to say some praise. But the Gemara in Brachas understands Shem Hashem, not just as hearing the name of Hashem, but when you read Torah, because Torah is Hashem's name. A name isn't the essence of someone. If I were to change my name from Moshe to David, I would still be the same person. My values wouldn't change. My uh, experience wouldn't change after... uh, you know, adjustment period, hearing myself called David, but the name is how we refer to people, how we access. If you're looking at someone across the room from you dressed in a red shirt and, and blue pants and you want to call them, you're not going to say, 
person over there in red shirt and blue pants and brown hair. You're going to say, yeah, David, Shlomo, Yitzchak, you'll, you, the name becomes um, an inherent identification, almost like the handle through which we access people. So is Torah the essence of Hashem? Absolutely not, but it is the, it's the way we access Hashem. Or the Pasuk in Yisro, Bechol HaMakom Asher Azkir Berachticha. Again, literally, anytime you mention my name, I will be there a reference to mentioning Hashem's name in Beis HaMikdash, or perhaps Berchaz Kohanim in Beis HaMikdash. The Mishnah in Perkei Avos, Gimel, interprets this as a reference to the fact that if a person learns Torah, Hashem is there, Hashem is present. How do you know that even one person studying Torah individually, how do you know that that solitary study is attended by a Kaddish Baruch Hu Shenemar Bechol HaMakom Asher Askir Eshemi. Anytime you mention my name, which according to this mission in Pirkei Avos means you mention a Kaddish Baruch Hu Shenemar I will be there and join you. So these are the metaphors which Chazal employed to describe Torah and to capture the fact that it is the way we access Hashem, the daughter of Hashem, the name of Hashem. But there are two locations in which Chazal directly claim that studying Torah grants us access to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will. The first is a commentary on a very well-known Mishnah. The Mishnah in the first parak of Pirkei Avos, quoting Shimon HaTzadik, the last member of the Knesset Hagidola, or one of the final members of the Anshe Knesset Hagidola, living in the early period of the first base of Mikdash, Hu Haya Omer, very well-known Mishnah, Al Shlosha Devarim Haolam Omed, Al Hatara, V'Al Ha'avoda, V'Al Gemilus Chasadim. Now, in the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, we don't really have much of a commentary. But in a parallel section in Avos Rebbe Nassim, which is a parallel compilation of statements of Chazal based on the theme of Perkei Avos, loosely based. Al HaTara Ketzad, how do you know the world rests on Torah? He quotes a Pasuk, Avos Rebbe Nassim and Perak Dalet quotes a Pasuk in Hosea, Ki Chesed Chafatzti V'lo Zevach, I want your charity and not your sacrifice. V'daz Elokim Me'olos, the knowledge of God is preferable to me than Korbanos. And of course this is a very uh, a very almost ubiquitous theme in the Nevi'im who chastised the Jewish people for getting too immersed in ritual and sacrifice and less sensitive to morality and ethics. So God chides the Jewish people, what I really care about is your moral justice and your ethics and not your sacrifices. Commenting on this passage in Hosea the Mishnah in Avos Drevnasan, or the Braisa in Avos Drevnasan, claims as follows. Talmud Torah When the Pasuk in Hosea said Hashem wants the knowledge of God, it meant He wants Talmud Torah, and it's preferable to Korbanos. Adam If a person studies Torah, Yodea He knows God's will. He knows God's mind. He knows God's will as it applies to the human experience. So when Hosea writes, Das Elokim, the knowledge of God is preferable to Olos, to Korbanos, what he really means, according to Chazal and Abbas of Nasan, is not just the knowledge of God granted through philosophy, but more directly, the knowledge of God granted through Torah study. And this is the first moment which Chazal articulate Torah study as a way of acquiring the knowledge of God. 
the play on the Pasuk in Hosea, Da'as Elokim, interpreted by Abbas Javnasen as Torah study. The second example is based on a Pasuk which is even more familiar. The first section of Kriyashma demands that we love Hashem, that we acquire that relationship, but it doesn't at least overtly instruct us how to love Hashem, the famous question of the Rambam, how do you love Hashem if we don't know Him? The, 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 the crisis, the barrier for religious experience. So the Sifri, in Parshas Ve'eschanan, interprets these Pesukim as follows. Torah demands that we love Hashem with all of our heart. How do I love God? With the implicit question being, how can I love without knowing, without understanding God? Talmud Lomar, and it doesn't really quote the Psukim, but I'll quote the Psukim. Talmud Lomar, you should study Torah. The first part of Kriyashma mentions three mitzvahs. Most of the mitzvahs are mentioned or alluded to in the second parsha. The Hayam Shemoa Tishmuel Mitzvosai. The second parsha describes obedience to Hashem's command, but the first parsha describes love of Hashem. And three mitzvahs. One mitzvah is Torah study. Teach your children, study Torah, and then two mitzvahs that are related to Talmud Torah. One is Ukshatem Leosal Yodecha, experiential form of Talmud Torah, not just studying Torah cognitively, but wrapping your body, your mind, and your heart, and then, of course, placing it on your overall surroundings, taking salient portions of Torah and placing them on your door and on your body. And as the Sifri concludes, by studying Torah, you understand God and you follow His ways. You cling to Him. And this is why Torah study, so to speak, invades the first parsha of Krishna. first parsha of Krishna doesn't talk about mitzvahs. It talks about what we would call theology, belief in God, Hashem Lekeinu, Hashem Echad, love of God, V'yaftat Hashem Lokecha, perhaps a reference to Yiras Hashem, the willingness to sacrifice your life on behalf of your love of God, um, which, according to many, is a show of Yiras Hashem, not Abbas Hashem, Bechol Abavcha, Bechol Nafshecha, Afilu Hunotelis Nafshecha, why is Torah mentioned in the section which seems to be contoured or shaped solely towards theology? And the answer is because without Torah study, you can't know God. And without knowing God, the entire theological system collapses, as the Rambam writes in Hechus Kriyashma, justifying the sequencing of the three parashas of Kriyashma. Why is this parasha, the parasha of Eschanan, placed first? The Rambam writes... Why do you read the first parsha, which we call the first parsha first? But because it contains Yichud Hashem, the fact that Hashem is one, both there are no other beings and also His unity, Hashem Echad, Avaso, Avas Hashem, Vitalmudo, and Talmudara, the Rambam writes. This is in Echus Kriyashma Peragalav. And the Rambam comments, feeling the need to justify the inclusion of Talmudara in the first section. Shehu Amura Gadol Shakol Talibah. Talmud Torah he calls the 
primary pillar upon which everything rests, upon which everything is built. Without it, the theological system collapses. So these are the two instances in which Chazal articulate the role of Talmud Torah in granting knowledge of Hashem, the most direct knowledge of Hashem. And this is why Talmud Torah is always seen as superior to philosophical inquiry. Many people believe that philosophical inquiry can enrich our knowledge of Hashem, our knowledge of how the world was created and how it is maintained. Many people feel that philosophy is irrelevant or in some cases dangerous. But all believe that Torah study is a more direct accessing of HaKadosh Baruch Philosophy is an attempt to articulate, to describe Hashem and His ways in human terms. Again, many people find that to be a, a, a enriching and very deeply religious um, enhancement. But Torah study is listening to Hashem's directly revealed will. It isn't a description of God in human terms, in human thought, and human concepts, which, as I said earlier, is structurally flawed. Just because it's flawed doesn't make it meaningless. But listening to Hashem's revealed will about our world, that's a direct encounter with Hashem's will in His terms. So many people have a difficult time understanding the importance of Gemara study. Gemara study seems so picayune, so technical, minutia, details. Well, ultimately, it's minute details until you are able to assemble together all the details and conceptualize broader concepts about what Hashem's will is regarding marriage, what Hashem's will is regarding sacrifices, festivals, contracts, society based in agriculture. Almost any detail of the human condition is described in the mass of Shas. It just takes a tremendous Herculean effort to survey those details and to begin to see the concepts peering out from the details. So many people argue, why aren't we studying the more existential, what some people call religious parts of Torah exclusively, prophecy and redemption and history and messianism and morality? Why are we wasting our time, in quotes, reading the laws of an animal who gores and how it should be put to death? The answer is that's just one detail amidst the total, total, vast, vast amalgam of details. And by covering all the details, even those which we will never have to implement, Shahaniskal in our day is totally irrelevant. But we get a sense of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will as it pertains to society and to torts and damage. And by looping together all of those details, and by conceptualizing and categorizing them, we are one step further understanding Hashem's will. And by understanding Hashem's will, we're that much closer to HaKadosh Baruch The very famous section of Rav Chaim Velazhen in the fourth shar, the fourth gateway, the fourth part of Nefesh HaChaim. And in this section, which is a bit polemical because he was responding to those who he thought were compromising the integrity of Torah experience by demanding more frontal time spent on Musr, what we would call Musr, personal improvement, fear of God. So he is a bit harsh in responding to what he perceives are the dangers of this movement. 
But his ultimate statement stripped of its polemical excess, one could say. The ultimate statement is that the ultimate religious experience is not through meditation or contemplation or what some would call yirashamayim and thinking about how much you fear heaven and your place in the overall hierarchy. But the deepest and most authentic religious experience is when a person is mentally engaged in trying to discover the truth about a Torah detail. Even if that detail seems to us far removed from deep religious meaning. Again, the laws of uh, Aksugors, or how to plant by avoiding Kilayim, or a Picayune detail about how to fill out a contract, or any other halachic unit, halachic entity, which may not directly yield what we would feel is larger religious meaning and larger religious truth. Because you are locked into that pursuit of knowledge of God, and knowledge of God is the predicate for any religious experience. So if you take time off, and here he speaks very harshly of Chaim Velazhin, from that pursuit of Hashem's knowledge to engage in uh, improvement of your own piety, you're basically stepping away from a more authentic religious encounter to a less authentic religious encounter. Of course, Chaim Velazhin is speaking to very, very um, accomplished um, religious personalities. Most of us would claim that in our context, we need those timely improvements to our piety, to our devotion, in order to preserve the purity of our own religious experience. But in theory, Chaim Volazhin is merely reasserting the reality that Torah study is the most direct conduit to Hashem. And this is why Judaism always places such primal value on Torah study, almost exclusive value, Talmud Torah. So the first year tried to address the reason that Torah is so important and so primary and place it within the overall context of the religious experience. The religious experience which is fraught with incongruence and discrepancy. Discrepancies which cause so many religions to fall into paganism, either coarse paganism or moderate paganism. And for us, we defy those slips into paganism, but for us, as we try to reach out to an invisible God, Tarastati remains the conduit, the most direct, not exclusive, but the most direct conduit by which we can understand God's will as it pertains to the human condition.